Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Alex Phoebe. He is the author of Lucia, the excellent new novel, new to us here in the USA, um, a novel of Lucia Joyce, which is published by our friends at Biblioasis. Alex, welcome to the program. Hi. It's an honor to have you here, Alex. And first, I want to ask you what the promotional cycle of this book has been like for you. You've gone through a bit of an an unusual cycle with this book in that it was released a few years ago in the UK. And then we move into a world where we don't really have a UK. And then there is a global pandemic. (laughs) Next thing you know, your novel is published in North America by the marvelous folks at Biblioasis. Seems like a bit of a whirlwind. Alex, what has the journey been like for you? Yeah, it's a confusing one. Uh, you're right, it was published a while ago. Uh, to great acclaim, has to be said. <laughs> and uh, even that was difficult because um, by that point I'd uh, finished writing it uh, a couple of years before that. Um, so when I was talking about it, it was already in the past. Uh, and then the pandemic hit uh, and uh, Biblioasis um, put it back on its schedules uh, until now, essentially. So this is two years after two years after I wrote it. So um and in the meantime, I've, I've written other books, uh, which are also <laughs> currently released. So my, the book after this is coming out uh, in the States in September and, the, and has already been released for over a year and is now in paperback in the UK. So I'm much more used to thinking and talking about that book, perhaps, than I am talking about Lucia. But Lucia had a lot of um, work involved in it because it's a it's a research heavy book so i, I tend to drift straight back into uh, talk of um effaced and erased women's uh, problems with uh, our culture's ability to deal with mental illness uh, and um being trapped in an asylum my first three books uh, all feature people who were um yeah, put into asylums um, and institutionalized as a way of uh, keeping them out of the house, essentially, uh, in one way or another. So, yeah, it is, has been unusual. Um, Biblioasis are getting me to do things um, with playthings, which they also produced, which was the book before Lucia. I came and did a really nice kind of tour. Uh, across um, Canada, which was fun, with a whole bunch of other writers. And I was kind of hoping that would happen again this time. But uh, the fatal diseases that we can cough over each other have put the mockers on that. So um, instead, I have to do a lot of things online, which I don't mind. It's quite fun, really. Yeah, well, hopefully um, you can do a tour for the next one, Alex. Yeah, Yeah, let's jump into this excellent novel, Lucia. Um, Alex... Lucia Joyce has inspired almost as many works lately as her father, James, uh, and her mother, Nora. Why, in your opinion, is Lucia Joyce someone that culture keeps returning to? Well, um, obviously, prior to my um, writing, there had been a couple of things. There was a novel in the 70s, uh, I think. Uh, And then there was another one by um, Annabel Abbs. Um, who had done a novel too. And then I think it was me. And then there's been two or three since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's one of those things, um, people like a mystery. So that's one. Uh, and I think people are often uh, inspired by 
things that have been done wrong in the past. So I think perhaps people didn't appreciate the way I'd written a book on Lucia, for example, and I can understand why they might not have done that. <laughs> that might have inspired them to carry on writing. But more likely, I think, is just um, a terrible injustice was done to Lucia Joyce uh, during her life. And I think it's one of those things that, um, particularly in this moment in time, we're keen to start looking at injustices and putting them right, uh, which has not obviously always been the case. And we're, we may be more or less successful in that kind of activity now. Um, but I think that um, someone who's so obviously emblematic of women who've been oppressed in the 20th century uh, as Lucia Joyce um, are, are now very obvious topics for, for people's attention. And I don't think you can have too many, um, unlike um, perhaps books on uh, James Joyce, of which I think there are still more than there are books on Lucia Joyce, uh, particularly in the non-fiction realm. Um, Lucia Joyce has only had one proper um, biography. So um, Carol Schloss's To Dance in the Wake um, is a good uh, biography. And um, I think particularly with fiction, you can get to the point where um, you can keep retreading old ground and still have something else to say. Uh, and it's one of those things I think that people want to say things about. Um, my feeling with, with writing Lucia was very much um, coming out of anger. Mm -hmm. And that's not often seen as a very positive emotion, uh, but I think it's a, a, the kind of emotion that can stir people into action that they otherwise um, wouldn't take. So it can be positive uh, as well as being kind of uh, aggressive. And then sometimes aggression itself is positive. And I think lots of people are angry at the way Lucia Joyce was, was treated. So I think that's probably why that is. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. And we'll return um, to some of the context of this question in a moment. But first, uh, the first thing I noticed upon opening this novel, Alex, is the uh, sort of ancient Egyptian art. Uh, what is going here and what does ancient Egypt have to do with Lucia Joyce? Um, well, various things. There's, you could, if you wanted, um, note that some people, some critics have looked at Finnegan's Wake, for example, uh, and uh, identified, and, and Ulysses, um, her father's works, uh, and identified um, Egyptology themes, particularly the Book of the Dead in that. Um, so that's one thing you could start to think in the first instance. Um, you could also think, okay, well, Lucia Joyce um, danced. She was a dancer. Um, so one of the things that she also kind of uh, adopted were these um, uh, kind of primitivist forms of body practice. So she would dance in a very unusual way, which might um, suggest to someone uh, Egyptian funerary painting in the kind of um, postures that she adopted. Um, I think the main one for me uh, is, as well as that, is that it's a nice allegory for me. Um, the allegory of, um, of uh, the Egyptian approach to the afterlife, particularly, because um, Egyptian religious practices were very much textually based uh, and image based. So uh, Egyptian particularly um, high-ranking officials and uh, people with wealth would be buried um, in tombs uh, in the kind of uh, ancient period um, with depictions of their life and their hope for afterlife uh, and the various things that they would like to offer to the gods of the afterlife on the walls of their tomb. Uh, okay, along with a series of, of kind of inscriptions and often prayers and spells. And um, that is something that I think is, is important in this book which itself is a kind of treatment of the afterlife, of a woman's afterlife, and of, of death in general. Uh, and there's a kind of attempt to emblematize her life and to think about her afterlife, and with certain parts of the book in the form of a spell, 
there's a very specific spell in there, uh, which is the spell of the opening of the mouth, which was a spell that was done uh, during Egyptian funerals in order to allow uh, the dead person to speak uh, at the ceremony of the weighing of the heart, which was the thing that Egyptian people had to do prior to entry into their heaven, essentially, to account for everything that they'd done. So there was all of that. But more importantly, I think, even in all of those things, uh, is the British history of, of, of colonial oppression in, in Africa. And to a certain extent, the um, desecration of the Egyptian uh, tombs that were discovered at the end of the 19th century. So desecration is a big issue as well. The British history of desecration in, in colonial Africa uh, is appalling. And I thought that was also a good allegory uh, in terms of the writer and the biographer, particularly a male biographer in fiction's approach to his um, dead voiceless subject is it's a kind of always already desecrating and i think that is is something that i was also interested alongside a kind of hypocritical and slightly uncomfortable position for me which i studied egyptology as a as an undergraduate um, in my art history degree and i've always been absolutely fascinated with egyptology and the imagery and the and the texts and the, the belief system and that only comes to me through that desecration. That only comes to me through the colonial history of, 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 um, of the British occupation of various parts of, of North Africa and the theft of, of artifacts and, and the putting of those in the British Museum, for example. So that complex melange of things is something that I don't bring into the text the narrative text of Lucia, but it's something that frames that in the same way as I think um, my existence in the world, my attempts to write about a topic that I may not even have uh, a justification in writing about. I think those things are, are neatly allegorized uh, in that whole historical understanding of British colonial interests uh, across the world. And to a certain extent, that that always already desecrating something that you try to have a look at. One of the other things I did as a, a man in my 20s was study uh, philosophical aesthetics uh, and critical theory. And I was always looking at um, surrealism and the surrealist philosopher Georges Bataille, uh, who does a lot of work on things that you can't rationalize. And my main theme of my work then was looking at ways of thinking about and speaking about irrational material without rationalizing it because the moment you rationalize it, you, you perform an appropriation on that material. And I was trying to, for many years, trying to come to some kind of understanding of how you could rationally speak about irrational things. Uh, and it came to a kind of a head eventually where I decided that it wasn't something that you could do. I don't think you can talk rationally about irrational things without appropriating them. But that in the appropriation of irrational things, you change rationality. So you make rationality different when you bring irrational things into it. And therefore, that the anxiety over appropriation um, is an unnecessary one in some ways. I think um, it may even give people who are being um, appropriated a way into attacking the people who are doing the appropriation by changing them like a virus would do. So it, the virus doesn't ask that you respect it the virus is taken in and then it does its work <laughs> and you die or you live and if you live you're changed 
And I think it's, 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 there's, a, there's a kind of metaphor there too for the kind of things that happen when people start to, to appropriate things that aren't theirs, um, is that they become changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Alex. Um, we'll return to Finnegan's Wake here in a little while too, okay. um, <laughs> as one does. Um, this novel opens with the sentence, quote, uh, we sought the opinions of our guides and set out for an area that had been well documented with no real expectation of a change in our fortune, end quote. Uh, this, of course, is from the perspective of our um, archaeologists who are in Egypt here, uh, who are in the process of discovering a tomb. Uh, but this perspective can undoubtedly be applied to you, Alex, as an author, uh, and the well-documented area can, of course, be that um, of Lucia and and James Joyce's lives. Uh, Can you talk about this first sentence, what is going on in the narrative as the novel opens here, and how it applies to you, Alex, in your artistic endeavor with this novel? Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, it's, um, I've very accurately summed up my own, (laughs) my own uh, and also the the ex- the um, benefit of talking about something that has been spoken about a lot. I mean, it is true that Lucia Joyce is more spoken about than she used to be. Okay, but there was a time in which uh, the Joyce estate um, sat on material Lucia Joyce pretty heavily uh, and prevented people from writing it, uh, and that's only changed very recently. So um, the idea that Lucia Joyce is more heavily trodden than other areas is 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 only obliquely true. So people have spoken about Lucia Joyce I mean, in, in Elman and, and, and various forms of um, critical work on, on things like uh, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake and made assumptions about that. Um, but I think um, this is something uh, essentially that I was trying to, to tie into my previous book, Playthings, as well, because Playthings uh, was about the uh, schizophrenic German judge, Daniel Paul Schreiber, um, who also was well, even more than Lucia Joyce, perhaps even more than James Joyce, uh, heavily written about in the 20th century. Uh, He was a case study of Freud and essentially everybody um, in anything to do with psychoanalysis, anything to do with psychiatry, anything to do with schizophrenia in general, will have written about um, Schreber. And again, the question is, well, what have you got to add? Okay, and then what I have to add, I think, what I had to add in Playthings uh, was a correction. So in Playthings, um, it didn't seem to me, which Bibliotis also published, by the way, um, in Playthings, um, I was trying to address the fact that people hadn't really thought about uh, Schreiber's wife, for example, or Schreiber's mother. Uh, it was all about his father, and particularly his kind of anxious, paranoid, um, kind of recasting of his father as, as God. Um, what they hadn't really talked about was, was his wife's role in that, uh, or his mother's role in that, um, which was odd, because um, Schreiber's wife suffered multiple uh, stillbirths and miscarriages, um, and uh, she and Schreiber um, had an extremely difficult time having children. And Schreiber's um, delusion was that he would be turned into a woman by God uh, and made to bear God's children. And it seemed to me that the absence of any discussion of his wife and particularly Schreiber's um, inability to have a, an heir to the Schreiber name was something that wasn't, wasn't spoken about. And that was work I could do in fiction. 
Um, and similarly um, with Lucia, I think there are things that are being overlooked uh, when people talk about Lucia. And I think those are um, a certain amount of leeway with the facts in terms of her relationship with the men in her life. Um, and also a kind of overly rigorous requirement for documentary evidence, um, which nonfiction work uh, needs. You need documentary evidence to make claims in nonfiction, but you don't so much in fiction. So my feeling was there that there was room uh, in Lucia Joyce kind of material and James Joyce material for kind of speculation on those things around what is already being said. Um, in Joyce um, scholarship and already been said in biographies of Lucia Joyce, but which either people have been legally prevented from saying uh, any more clearly or people have been, or the material has been suppressed by the Joyce estate. And fiction don't, doesn't have such a rigid set of structures around it, uh, but if you approach it um, with a certain amount of seriousness, I think then people can read and understand those absences, I think. So areas where there is already a lot written uh, are good for me because then I can, I can do the, the serious research that I tend to do with work uh, and to allow that research to then inform the, the fictional material. And people would say the same thing about, I now write in fantasy, so I've been writing mm. genre fiction. And people say, well, do we need another fantasy novel? You know, do we need another fantasy novel? Mine is as a, as a kind of uh, a downcast boy who discovers powers. Do we need another one of those? Aren't there a thousand of those? Isn't Harry Potter one of those? And my aim is to then kind of boulder through that <laughs> and show you that you can go new ways with old material. Uh, and honestly, I think we're probably all trapped in recycling old material anyway. And to imagine that we're all coming up with something enormously original is just to forget what happened 50 years ago, to get what happened 100 years ago, forget what happened 150 years ago. Um, we're constantly in a process of recycling old themes and material anyway. Um, and uh, often uh, the original tends to be just a rehashing of something people have forgotten about. So um, yeah. It's an overwritten area, but I don't think that that's necessarily an issue. Oh, neither do I, nor do I think that it's really overwritten. Um, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. Was it um, Stephen Joyce that was keeping kind of a grasp of Lucia's story and then he passed away and it kind of... Yep, got that's faded. essentially what's happened. I mean, I think also Stephen Joyce, uh, as he got older, just became less litigious. Um, and most of his um, academic, most of his legal um, activity uh, was in suppression of rights. So um, people who needed to use um, work that the Joyce estate had copyright over uh, would be stopped from saying certain things uh, by the removal of the rights to, to use you know, chunks of, of Joyce's work or parts from the letters often or parts from um, Research Institute holdings. Mm -hmm. and there'd be a kind of blackmail, remove this, oh, you don't get the rights to publish this. And, and that's how that happened throughout the 70s, 80s. She's, um, and then there were other things, of course, that Stephen Joyce famously destroyed correspondence between Lucia Joyce and Beckett and Lucia Joyce and Joyce uh, and vice versa. Uh, and all of those things are, are kind of things that are, are kind of known in the public record. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Alex Phoebe. 
The Bookin Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Alex Phoebe, author of Lucia, which is published by our friends at Biblioasis. Um Alex, I told you we were going to come back to this. Uh, I want to talk about your decision to start Lucia's story in 1982, specifically with the treatment of a corpse. Is this sort of a Finnegan's Wake beginning where we start at the end or is something else afoot here? Well, I mean, <laughs> um, it would be disingenuous for me to say that I didn't think of that. But then the thing is that Finnegan's Wake is so uh, extensive that it's almost impossible to write anything without it somehow being either construable or misconstruable as a reference to Finnegan's Wake. Um, and I, I don't, I, it's not something that I want to, didn't do rigorously, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. if I'd have wanted to. And, you know, I was thinking about it for a while. I could have made it much more Finnegan's Wake uh, related. But my feeling was that what I would do is tease that at the beginning and then take it out, uh, whip it out from under the reader's feet as if to suggest that anybody who should want something like that uh, hasn't really understood what a book on Lucia Joyce is likely to be about. Um, because uh, it's not going to provide you with your kind of Joyce pleasures um, and quite the opposite. Uh, it kind of uh, makes snidey jibes um, at, at James Joyce from the, from within its pages um, and at the Joyce uh, estate and Joyce scholarship, uh, all of those things. And again, not from a particular position that I feel uh, very aggrieved because I don't have anything to be aggrieved about. Um, it's just that it was a it's, it's a possibility for a book like Lucia to deal with things that other people, for example, a Joyce summer school or a Joyce conference will mention to you uh, and will talk about secretly behind the scenes, but won't present in their papers uh, because they don't want to upset anybody or they don't want to... Uh, get on the wrong side of people that they know they need to remain on the right side of or they don't want to say something that they know that somebody else who is in a superior position to them in academia disagrees with all of those things i think uh, are much more lucia's kind of uh, material so rather than do anything as rigorous as, as kind of go page by page through finnegan's wake and uh, leave sufficiently large numbers of references that a person could kind of deconstruct lucia and make a finnegan's wake light out of it i decided instead or to do what some people i think sometimes do which is to try and adopt a kind of pastiche of joycean uh, modernist stream of consciousness um wordplay um mm-hmm. rather than do those things i wanted to do something else instead um those are the things that i think would be the first thing you would think of. Okay, well, he's going to write Lucia Joyce, but he's going to do it in the style of James Joyce. Uh, Or he's going to write about Lucia Joyce, but he's going to map that against uh, the structure of Ulysses. Um, I felt that those things would be crass 
uh, essentially, and, and probably not worth doing, uh, which isn't to say I didn't consider doing. <laughs> I can be crass uh, and incapable of seeing the wood for the trees as anybody else. Um, but it was at that point when I started to try and do the research and to write the material that I, I didn't think that was something that, I, that would be good to do. So instead it went the way that it did go. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any point trying to kind of uh, pick it apart looking for clues, for example. I think most of the work is done on the page. Uh, the Egyptology material, funnily enough, uh, is more clue-based. There there's a secret in it uh, mm -hmm. that could be decoded. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the rest of the material kind of wears its heart on its sleeve, I think, a little bit more than that. Yeah, um... Thank you, Alex. You tell Lucia's story, uh, much of her story, by talking about the people who were around her, uh, not only people around her, specifically the men around her. Uh, can you talk to our listeners about this decision? I found it to be a masterful storytelling device. Thanks. Um, well, I think that that's where um, the issue for me, and perhaps the, I don't think people need the right to write about things. Uh, and if they did need the right, I don't know where they, that right is granted or from whom. Um, but, but I think you would need to ha think about your justifications for doing something. And I think my structural position as a white uh, professional, uh, now middle class, I didn't start off as middle class, but now middle class man means that I have certain privileges to say things. Uh, and I think in that case, I have a privilege and a, a, and a requirement on me uh, by basis of that privilege to write about misogyny. I think that that's one of the things that um, you need to do uh, as a white man living in the 21st century is to address misogyny. I don't think there, I think it's, it's something that you can uniquely do usefully. Um, from from the position of of, of not necessarily finding yourself victimised by it personally, but seeing how that works from a kind of protected space, and I think that's what I was trying to do with with, with by dealing with the men in her life, particularly men who had worked with her medically, and men who had taken charge of her, uh, and uh, family members, uh, and all of those other people who exercise power over women, um, aside from the repressive state apparatuses of, of the police, um, those more subtle ones like medicine and friendship and lovers and, um, and brothers and fathers and uncles and all of those other people who enact misogyny on, on women across the world every day. Uh, so my feeling was that I didn't probably uh, have the position or necessarily the skill to write Lucia Joyce, um, particularly not to write her voice, um, but I did have the skill uh, and did have the insight to write about uh, misogynistic men who dealt with her. Um, and so that, that was what kind of pushed that kind of idea. And once I decided on that, then it became a, a kind of an attempt essentially to paint a silhouette of, of Lucia Joyce um, with these men. Okay, not by looking at her and saying, hello, I'm Lucia Joyce, and this is the, these are the terrible things that I suffered, but instead to know what happened to her and to know that her teeth had all been removed while she was preparing for dentures in Northampton Asylum and to know that she'd been given treatments um, of, of hydrotherapies of one type or another and to know that she'd 
it is suggested, um, had problems with Beckett, had problems with Joyce, and probably had problems with her brother and her uncles too. Uh, and again, these aren't things I've invented. These are things that have that have kind of relatively um, known, but not spoken about a great deal within Joyce scholarship. Um, to know those things and to, to paint a picture of someone's life uh, by the misogynist outsides of it. Um, that became, for me, quite depressing, I have to say, and uh, hard to write. You know, I'm not trying to kind of make people feel sorry for me, but there are times in which I needed lightness for the book as much as anything else. So I also occasionally made moves into writing about people like uh, Tori Thursby, for example, who was her friend in, in Northampton um, Asylum, and writing parts that were, were more um, upbeat, I guess, and uh, sympathetic and loving. Uh, and the last section, which almost no one has spoken about since I wrote it, the last um, kind of uh, fifth, I guess, of the book, perhaps a bit less, uh, is a kind of reworking of her life uh, in various different ways. It gets closer to talking about Lucia Joyce, but which are very, very obviously fictional and very, very obviously um, untrue. They just aren't true and they, they don't claim to be true. But that kind of uh, remolding re of some of those experiences, recasting them, taking the same elements and, and kind of twisting them into what might have been a happier life for her takes place towards the end. Mm -hmm. um, and those are just, I mean, they're, they're both things that I need to do as a writer because um, this took a, a lot of my life. Um, and and I think sometimes people who read books um, and readers in general imagine that it's a kind of something that you do for your own pleasure and then um, they get to decide whether you were right or not to do that. Um, lots of writers don't feel like that. Lots of writers feel like they've been kind of possessed by the requirement that they do something and often are very unhappy while they're doing it. <laughs> and it's a lot of really hard work and the kind of um, that, became um, difficult for my mental health um, as I was going through it because I'm not particularly stable and like uh, many of us have my own struggles uh, with, my, with mental health issues. And as we, I was getting towards the end of this, it was too bleak for me. It became too bleak without having some kind of possibility to give some kind of redemption both to the book's story and to the things that I was doing. So every now and then there are lighter moments uh, in there because it's a bleak book there's no point in denying it it's it's there's a lot of misery in there yeah and i think i'm maybe imposing um my kind of years of studying joyce and the framework of that onto this book but i did find the end to be um sort of affirming in some of the same ways as um the molly bloom chapter of ulysses sure <laughs> that one could we could do that we could do that if we wanted to certainly yeah. i mean i'm not saying that we wouldn't yeah, right. <laughs> and, we, and we definitely could i i think um <laughs> it's tricky because um yeah obviously those things again though it's, it's difficult to to enter this territory and not end up doing something that, that references it um regardless of what you do um but i think i I'm, i hope it exceeds that and isn't uh, a secondary kind of um approach i'm not trying to rewrite anything and i'm um, and i think that structure as you've correctly identified is present <laughs> within yeah. within some of james joyce's work yeah in in um 
as a huge fan of James Joyce, let me just uh, iterate here that that comparing something that you have written to James Joyce is to me a, a huge compliment. Like my, how who else could you write? Um, be writing things. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously that good. Be <laughs> yeah, um, that's yeah it would be tricky. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, thank you, Alex. Finally, um, to step away from this novel uh, for a moment, there are authors who have inspired a whole industry of scholarship and novels exploring their lives and their families' lives. James Joyce, of course, who we've been speaking of, William Shakespeare, uh, Jane Austen, uh, recently James Baldwin. Uh, Do you, Alex, think there are any authors writing today who, 100 years from now, will inspire such fervor amongst authors and academics? Well, that's tricky. I mean, I, I think the heyday of the kind of uh, of the modernist um, is is probably past. I think that that that, that kind of um, modernist grand narrative that was very very popular in the twentieth century. Some idea that there are exemplars of the of their zeitgeists that if we could only examine them in close enough detail, we would understand the nineteen twenties, the nineteen thirties, the nineteen forties, the nineteen fifties. That died with with post structuralist theory, and I'm not sure that it's been reborn uh, for perfectly good reasons. So I think now you're much more in a position of having a, a massive proliferation of people who all stand for small parts of things mm-hmm. uh, and who aren't taken as the great voice of their generation. I mean, there are people, I suppose, that uh, I'm not saying they're misconstrued as the voice of their generation, but are certainly written about in newspapers uh, as the voices of their generations. And, um, you know, we can think of ones going through the 80s, 90s, uh, which we may more or less uh, like or not like or want to debunk or not, and you can add your own <laughs> your own figures in here, most of whom are men. Um, but yeah. writing now, it, it is really tricky because I think that that a kind of uh, hegemonizing zeal that writing used to have to to contain everything um, is is rightly gone. Um, but I think there are certain people, obviously, who are writing good work, um, and some people who are writing work that people take to be culturally important. So someone like Sally Rooney, for example, people are very, very keen on writing uh, uh, as if they are the, the, you know, the kind of new rightly exemplars of their generations. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if people knowing that was the case in a hundred years time would come back and try to pick apart the kind of things that people wrote. I mean, if it was thing for me, if we were going to do it for me, if I was to be that person in the future, then I think someone like Angela Carter was probably uh, someone that you could you could look at very seriously. I think Ursula Le Guin is someone that you could probably look at very seriously as, a, as an exemplar of a, an alternative stream of, of writing practice that existed outside the mainstream uh, of, of, of literary um, aggrandizement. Um, she's, she's the kind of writer, and Angela Carter, the kind of writer who existed on a, on a margin of a much more masculinist kind of frame, uh, which um, you could overturn if you wanted to. But, you know, both of those people are dead now, obviously. Um, so um, I don't know. I think much more likely to happen is that people will look at things like, and uh, you, you will disagree, fan fiction. I think that people will look at massive agglomerations of writing practice that exist outside the commercial world. I think those are the places mm-hmm. where um, the things that are really about early 21st century life go on. 
So I don't think it is about who can who, who can find uh, the backing of a large publisher, uh, who can find the backing of a small publisher, who can have a breakout hit that sells millions of copies that everybody reads and everybody got to know about and everybody kind of ossifies into this position as, a, as the great literary work of the 21st century. I think it's much more likely to, to look at those technical changes, technological changes in the way that people write. So fan fiction, the kind of burgeoning um, creative writing industry in general, and to a certain extent, things like blogs and, um, and uh, podcasts and all of those other things that come with a technological kind of advance. I think it's in those areas that we're more likely to be searching for something that means something in the early 21st century, uh, because I don't think there's any point in, in assuming that there is a great there are the great writers that we should be studying. Um, I hope not anyway, because I think we did a lot of work in the 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, undermining that sense that, you know, that there was a great modernist evolutionary progress in literature and that these men uh, I uh, <laughs> exemplified it. When it comes to ind industries, that's all in the past. I mean, my, my wife um, is a relative, um, long way down the line, of a writer called Mary Brunton. Mm -hmm. And Mary Brunton was a, a contemporary of Jane Austen and was considerably better selling than Jane Austen, considerably better regarded than Jane Austen at the time. Uh, Jane Austen sold very few books while she was alive, um, and they only became very popular, much, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, century after her death so i don't know who there is who's going to become much more popular than they are a century after their death maybe except me obviously people are going to have to look at my work and how brilliant it is but in general, those people who are who are not recognized now are very difficult to spot uh, in the future otherwise we'd all be thinking about mary brunton and going to on a mary brunton themed holiday as opposed to going on a jane, jane austen uh, themed holiday Right. And as you're saying all this, I'm looking at my stack of arcs over here at what just arrived on top. Uh, yeah, well, quite. <laughs> Have you had a look at it yet? Not yet. No, I literally <laughs> just, just landed on my desk. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's excellent. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Um, I'll, let our, I'll let our readers guess what we're talking about. We won't even mention it out loud. <laughs> yeah, um, that's sensible. Yeah, great. Well, um, Alex, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for writing this beautiful novel. The writing in it is just stellar. And again, when I'm comparing your writing to James Joyce's writing, in my mind, you have done something very, very right. Listeners, I've been speaking with Alex Phoebe, author of Lucia, which is published by our friends at Biblioasis. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Alex Phoebe for joining me. Copies of Lucia can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore the process. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Booking.